Father, help us to understand Jesus Christ better and not only to understand the concept of Jesus Christ, but actually Him so that we might um, rest in Him like we haven't before. And for those who are not currently trusting in Him, that they might. Thank you so much for sending Your Son into this world so that we might know You, so that we might know what it means to have um, a sureness of forgiveness and restoration. In His name we pray. Amen. need you to sort of guess uh, what I'm going to describe to you here. It lacks love. It's characterized by pride instead of humility, especially with leaders. There's a lot of preaching, maybe too much preaching, and not a lot of practicing. And finally, it's too exclusive. That would be a pretty common description or descriptive terms or descriptive statements about what? Church, Christianity, Christians, religion. Pretty common descriptors. Is descriptors a word? Common ways to describe religion. To describe Christianity, oh, it's too exclusive. I don't like Christians, they're exclusive. I don't like Christians because they talk about love, but they don't actually love. Uh, I don't like religion because um, the leaders of all people are the super arrogant ones and prideful ones. So I always feel preached at, people say. Pretty common. Well, this morning, we're going to um, watch Jesus rescue religion. We're going to watch him rescue religion because those things actually do characterize even the Christian religion, uh, unfortunately, too many times. And what we're going to see is Jesus in Luke 14. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to look at Luke 14 and we'll look at the first 24 verses and we're going to see Jesus rescuing religion. Those things are true. Those accusations are sometimes, unfortunately, true characteristics. And Jesus shows up and he sets the record straight. And that's what I mean by he rescues religion. And he's going to take four actions. And we're going to follow an outline today of four actions taken by Jesus that witness him rescuing religion. If you're a note taker, I'll give you the preview now. Number one, the first action he takes, demonstrating true love, demonstrating true love. The second, instructing in genuine humility, instructing in genuine humility. Number three, exposing the folly of Christless Christians. Exposing the folly of Christless Christians. We'll talk about what that means. And number four, final, the final action we'll observe him taking that rescues religion, uh, specifically the Christian religion, expressing the diversity of God's call. Expressing the diversity of God's call. I'll repeat each of those later, uh, but enough for now. Before we go any further, some of you probably are rubbed the wrong way already um, because I use the word religion. We don't like the word religion in 21st century um, Christianity. We don't like the word outside of 21st century Christianity. Um, maybe it's just because I'm, as my grandmother would have said, ornery. Um, Maybe it's because I'm just a little bit of a contrarian because sometimes when we say things in a way we know uh, is going to be a little bit counter what people enjoy it can help make the point and so i didn't say when jesus restores spirituality 
Um, I didn't say when Jesus restores Christianity. I specifically wanted to say Jesus restores religion because it might make us think a little bit. Now, Christians for the last, I don't know how long, since I've been a Christian, it was trendy when I first became a Christian. I'm sure before that, we wanted to try to protect, um, we wanted to explain ourselves better. And what we didn't mean by Christianity is, you know, formal, cold, go through the motions, impersonal. And so we started saying, it's not a religion. What? It's a relationship. And hats off to that way of thinking because we, we meant something good because we wanted to make sure our friends knew we're not talking about just standing up at the right time, sitting down at the right time and going through the motions. It's personal. And, 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 and Jesus relates to us not just externally, formally. He relates to us personally through his spirit. And so we said it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And I know why and I've said that before myself. And then outside of Christianity, we want to say it's, it's not religion. I'm not religious, I'm what? I'm spiritual. And so that's, that's a, a less Christianized kind of version of it. Here's the thing. Here's why I want to be contrary and say, and, and say Jesus restores religion. At least in this co- context with you all. Because you'll hear me out, hopefully. The word religion, by the way, means to have a relationship with one's deity. <laughs> okay? That's a real literal definition. You can look it up. A, a religion is a relationship with one's deity. And so I realize culturally why we've done what we've done. But isn't it ironic that when we say, I'm not religious, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, we're saying, I'm not religious, I'm religious. (laughs) Or we're saying, I'm not in a relationship, I'm in a relationship. It just doesn't even make sense. But we've tried to counter a misunderstanding. And that's fine. But here's the thing. Or then we say, I'm not into religion, I'm, I'm into spirituality. In both cases, in their worst senses, we don't want any formality. We don't want any structure. It's however I define it because authority is in me. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. And too many times that well-meaning statement by Christians, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, in the worst case means that also. There's no boundaries. There's no, there's no objective truth or reality. It's whatever I make it. And so I want to recover that word, even though I probably won't use it outside of this context. Jesus recovers religion because Jesus wasn't throwing away all the boundaries. Jesus wasn't saying it doesn't really matter. Yes, it's personal, but Jesus doesn't say it's personal and nothing else. But what he does is he exposes the abuses of the structure. And he exposes the abuses of the rigidity that is actually false religion. Under the guise of true religion, a true relationship with God. Yes, that has boundaries. That has structure. And so we're going to see him do that. And I hope I haven't lost you by giving you that little bit of a rant. Number one. The first action by Jesus that rescues religion uh, is demonstrating true love. Demonstrating true love. Look at verse 1 in the context of so many times religion is supposed to be loving and it isn't. And here's a case. And Jesus has to expose it. Look what it says in verse 1. On one Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully scrutinizingly they're watching him. One Greek scholar translated watching him carefully this way. 
He wa- they watched lurkingly. I kind of like the, the deceptiveness of lurkingly. They're watching because they want to catch him. And we know that's the case given what has already tra- uh, transpired with them. They want to catch him in something. Back in chapter 11, verse 53, the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, for him to catch him. They're watching lurkingly, watching him carefully because they want to expose him as false. Verse 2, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Symptoms are swollen limbs, swollen tissue, resulting in significant bodily fluid retention, swollen up so all can see. Historically, we're told that Herod the Great struggled with this issue. And so everybody can see he's got a serious physical problem. He needs help. Doctors haven't been able to help. And the Pharisees have this man in front of Jesus. Now we have to read between the lines here, so it may or may not be true. It's speculation. Let's acknowledge that. But given their track record, that they like powerful things and powerful people, they like the strong, not the weak, they want to get Jesus, given their, their history, that what we've seen so far, we wouldn't be out of line in guessing that he's a plant. That they're using this hurting man, and they've got him there. They wouldn't necessarily want him at their party, of all kinds of people. But they have him there because they're watching Jesus lurkingly. They want to expose him as the fraud they think him to be. And what's so amazing, Jesus is going to use their false accusations to show their false love or lovelessness so he can teach about real love, which is what we want to see, which is what should be true in real religion, genuine Christianity. Verse 3 then says, And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, not, not lawyers like we think, they're experts in supposedly experts in God's law, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Verse 4 starts by saying, but they remain silent. Why? Put yourself in in, in their sandals. There's the man with the problem. Jesus has the power to help him. He's already shown that he has a power to help him. It's on the Sabbath. It's a setup, seems. And Jesus says, well, let me ask you all. Experts, Pharisees, is it lawful for, for, for me to heal this man on the, on the Sabbath? And, and they're like, nothing. Why? If you were them in their, in their spot, you probably would too. Because if you say, yes, it's lawful, Jesus, and we know you have the power to do it. If you, if you do that, you are going against a long-standing tradition, right? That's what you're doing. And therefore, you're, you're betraying all of your, all of your fathers, so to speak, at least for a, a while now. And, and you're signing against them, which is going to put you on the outs with, with your little group of Pharisees. So you don't, you don't want to say that it's lawful. And oh, by the way, then, then you're actually affirming Jesus because he's done it. So let's not say anything. 
But if you say, Jesus, it's not lawful, which is essentially what their practice was. But if you say it, that's going to be perceived as unloving, which it would be. And Jesus is on that track. So what do you do? You just shut your mouth. Sometimes silence is a good thing because it doesn't reveal our foolishness. Proverbs talk in those terms. Sometimes I would suggest to you silence when it comes to not being able to answer the most basic questions shows fundamental faults with religious systems. You can't answer the most basic kinds of questions even that relate to your religion. It would appear as if you've taken this religious system, in this sense, this is the the true religion. And you've so perverted it and twisted it, you're at a place now where you can't even answer basic questions about morals and ethics. It's perverted, it's twisted, and Jesus is exposing that even though they're trying to expose Jesus. This has already come up once. Um, You can take a note if you'd like to. In Luke chapter 13, we're studying the gospel according to Luke as a church right now, so we just saw this. But if if you weren't here, Luke 13 verse 14 says, But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, furious, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days to be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then verse 15 said of chapter 13, Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey, even your animals, from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Of course. Of course. Now let's go back to our text. Chapter 14, verse 4. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. We know what Jesus thinks about what can be done on the Sabbath. Yet again, we see what Jesus thinks. It most certainly is conducive to heal people and give them rest on the day of rest. And isn't it interesting, then Jesus sends him away. Pertinent especially if he was there being um, a tool of manipulation, using this man. And Jesus can dismiss him and say, you can leave now. No more embarrassment. As a matter of fact, you're healed. There will be no more using you here today. And Jesus graciously dismisses him. Then verse 5 says, and he said to them, but he didn't stutter like I just did. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. They could not reply because they didn't understand the question. They could not reply because they didn't understand the right answer. They could not reply because if they replied, it would show that they're busted, right? They, they, would, they would cop to their guilt. They could not reply. They would not reply. Now I have a question for you. and We just need to kind of slow it down just a little bit. Question. How does this account, it's a huge question, how does this account demonstrate the true love of Jesus? If we had all day, and we don't, I know sometimes I preach like we do, but come on, give me a break. If we had all day, it'd be a great exercise. 
It's actually a pretty deep and wide kind of exercise. How does what we just saw here, how, how does this event show us the genuine love of Jesus in restoring a right perspective of true religion, so to speak? I have a whole list. Imagine that. Sound like a preacher. Okay, let me give you my list quickly because you didn't have opportunity to think ahead on this one. Number one, demonstrates true love. Jesus demonstrates true love by helping the man. That's the obvious one, right? You're like, duh. But he does demonstrate true love when nobody else did. They're Jews. He's a Jew. It's the right religion. Salvation is of the Jews, John chapter 4. They don't love, he loves. He's showing the true intent by by demonstrating true love. How else does it demonstrate true love by Jesus? Jesus demonstrates true love by exposing their lovelessness. He exposes their lovelessness. Now, if you're a Pharisee, you might say, that's not very loving for you to get after us like that. But in the grand scheme of things, it's absolutely loving because if the Leaders are leading people, which they are, and what they say is love is actually not love. The most loving thing Jesus can do is say, that's not love. Let me show you what real love is. And now it moves to the not so obvious. Jesus demonstrates true love by revealing his Messiahship in healing. Sounds complicated and like a lot, but it's not. Jesus demonstrates true love by revealing his Messiahship in healing. The reason I'm saying that is because way back in chapter 4 of Luke, which sets the tone for all this, we saw in Luke 4 that Messiah, Messiah is the Old Testament word for the New Testament word Christ, the deliverer, the ultimate king, the restorer, okay? That Jesus, as Messiah, shows his Messiahship, that he really is the ultimate deliverer, and one of the ways he shows that is through healing. Because when Messiah comes, he's going to bring deliverance, he's going to bring righteousness, he's going to bring justice, he's going to bring restoration, including physical restoration. And so when Jesus heals this man, he is loving this man, yes, He's exposing false love, yes, but he's also showing love for them. He's showing love for us by communicating to us who he really is. You don't have to be duped and deluded into thinking someone else is the Messiah or I'm not the Messiah. I'm going to show you with objective, tangible acts, I'm the one who by my love and healing show you that I am the Messiah. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what they've been anticipating. He lovingly shows who he really is. Jesus furthermore demonstrates true love by showing the true intent of the Sabbath. If you're a Jewish person and you've been listening to the Pharisees, you think Sabbath, at this point in time, you think Sabbath oh, inflicts pain. Sabbath burden. Sabbath, you don't even help people. Oh, well, we help the ox. And if it's a family matter, we'll do it. It's, been, it's associated with lack of love. Jesus shows the true intent of the Sabbath. It's a day of rest given by God. Refreshment. It wasn't meant for, for some sort of sinister, abusive conduct that's anti-love. It doesn't make sense. 
related to this, Jesus demonstrates true love by showing that the Sabbath is actually good. Now we're getting into the deep end of the pool, I know. Why is it absolutely essential that Jesus shows that the Sabbath is good? Now, if we step back and we think big picture and you know the Bible a little bit more than just Luke 14, Jesus is going to show and needs to show that the Sabbath is good. It's not meant to inflict pain. It's, it's rest. It's good because Jesus himself is going to provide the ultimate Sabbath. If, by the way, he leaves it where it is, Sabbath is bad, inflicts pain, it's the day of non-love toward others, you leave it there, then Jesus is bad and Jesus doesn't give rest and Jesus inflicts pain. So Jesus lovingly sets the record straight by doing good on the Sabbath, showing love on the Sabbath so that that person who had that physical ailment can say, I love Sabbath. I've experienced Sabbath on Sabbath. Sabbath is good and positive for rest because Jesus is the one who says about himself, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I, what? Some of you Christians know this. I will give you Sabbath. I will give you rest. I will give you ultimate rest. I will give you ultimate Sabbath. And so we know in light of that, that this, this Sabbath theme that runs throughout the Bible has an intention of finding its, its fulfillment and finding its, its high point and finding its, its substance, if you will, in Christ where we find ultimate rest. It's cool to think about. It's awesome. Sabbath isn't bad. Jesus loves us enough to show that Sabbath is good and loves us enough to show us it's good so that He can show us even His goodness. Just a couple more. Jesus demonstrates true love by always loving his neighbor in place of all who would trust him. Jesus demonstrates true love by always loving his neighbor in place of all who would trust him. Don't check out on this one. This is worth it. This is worth the price of admission. Jesus loved his neighbor here. That man had a need, a genuine need. It didn't violate the Sabbath. Now, it's kind of scary because you're getting scrutinized by people who want to kill you. So the temptation might be there to not love the man as Jesus was free to do and could do. We should all be so thankful singing in the personal hallelujah chorus that Jesus did it. Beyond that, we should be so thrilled beyond measure that he always loved his neighbor as himself because as he did that, he did that on behalf of everyone he would represent. Don't check out yet. Here's where I'm going. Jesus is said to fulfill the law for us. And the law says, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus did that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus loved his neighbor always, perfectly, in every instance, even where it wasn't popular to do so. And guess what? His neighbor loving, i.e. law keeping, is credited to my spiritual account. So that as a believer, and for you too if you're a believer, God sees you as if you loved your neighbor all the time perfectly. This is gospel stuff. It's awesome. It's awesome. Here I stand before you as a sinner, a lawbreaker. Not flaunting it, ashamed of it. God sees me 
as a believer, and this is true for you if you're a believer as well, as a law keeper, as if I've loved my neighbor perfectly always and as if I've loved my father with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus loves us here by loving his neighbor. So, so good. You say, how do you know all this stuff? Are you making it up? No, but I'm reading this passage even in light of what I know to be true about the interpretation about what Jesus did. The just for the unjust. The law keeper is what that means. For the law breakers. What's the essence of the law according to Jesus? When he's put on trial by the Pharisees, it's love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And that summarizes the whole thing. And we see Jesus doing it here. And he's doing it ultimately, big picture, for us. That's a great Savior. It's an awesome. It's a matchless Savior. Almost done. We should make this like a seven-parter. This is... A, can't do that. Number seven on my list. Not that you need numbering. Sorry if that's confusing. Um, this is still point number one, which is really confusing. Um, all the guys in my preaching classes, when I say don't give substructure numbers because it confuses people, I just committed the foul of preaching class. So, <clears throat> fell on my sword. Um, if that doesn't make any sense to you, it's fine. Sorry. Um, Finally, just as far as answering the question, how does this demonstrate true love by Jesus? Finally, it demonstrates true love by Jesus by setting, ex by setting an example for his followers. I'm purposely putting it last. Sometimes we purposely put it first. Let's purposely put it last. If we're united to Christ by faith, then his law-keeping is credited to us. We're acceptable before God. And now we're in the place of ability and motivation to imitate. And now I want to say, I know how to love people better. I know how to love as a Christian. When people have a need, I can help them and should help them. And I can do that. And I know the law, in this case it's the Sabbath law, is not in... in, in conflict with that. I know that it's the right thing to do. Jesus is my example. And He loved me enough to show me a right example. Thankfully, He loved me enough first to show me redemption. But out of that, I, I've got a great example here, and so do you. So when religion gets a bad rap for being non-loving, even though they talk about love, you know, we deserve some of that. We really should be loving. And we should talk about love. So let's move on. Let's go to the next one. I promise we're going to go faster. I promise, I promise, I promise. But I am a sinner, so I might be lying. <laughs> Thankful for accredited righteousness. No, it's not meant to be used as a license, right? Um, number two, the second action by Jesus that rescues religion is instructing by genuine humility. Religious people, Christians are the prideful, arrogant, self-seeking, especially the leaders. Some of them, you see them on TV and it's about themselves and what they fly and what they drive. And, and it's the power struggle even with the ones who aren't on TV. And it's self, 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 self. Yeah, that's not right and not good. Jesus is going to confront that sort of thing especially to a culture that associated with 
exaltation somehow with greater godliness. Verse 7, let's go ahead and read. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. Then he noticed how they, when he noticed, excuse me, when he noticed how they chose their places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will, who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Maybe put your finger there just for a second before we go to verse 10. Let's not try to do apples to apples to the way we do weddings and wedding receptions. And, and it's a different culture, different time, but we can understand what's going on, right? Sometimes it was based upon age in the first century ancient kind of culture. Sometimes it's based upon ability, prestige, the, that sort of thing seems to be the latter here. But we get the idea. You've got the most learning, your highest ranking, you, you're, you're somebody. Well, when you show up, you're going to go for the better seats in the house. Because that's, that's normal for the culture. But what if you do that and someone higher than you shows up and now things have filled in a little bit and so the only place left for you because we're going to follow the custom, we got to give the guy with the bigger hat, you know, the bigger chair, so to speak. And if we follow the custom, the only place left for you is nosebleed seats to cross cultures. But you get the idea. The bad seats. He's saying don't do that. That's foolish. Verse 10, but when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and, the, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Pretty easy to understand the point, don't you think? Pretty easy to understand the point. Maybe we should give them a little bit of um, grace. You know, especially if the culture was already that way and the culture already acknowledged um, the prestigiousness of a certain kind of education, certain kind of family background, certain kind of connection, certain kind of deals like that. And that's just how it was. So in one sense, I'm going to cut them some slack. But isn't it interesting that regardless of the cultural expectation... Jesus calls his followers to think differently. To think differently than the custom or the norm or the tradition. Because my followers, I want to be humble, not prideful. And again, it might mean being countercultural. This can be the most glaring with religious people. Thankfully, I love verse 11. We've already read it, but it's so helpful. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So while we may not be in the same situation, um, leaders don't have to try very hard and they get exalted. And we need to be conscious of that and try to be contrary of that, to that. But just as Christians, of all people, we would want to be humble and not be self-exalting even if that's just following the flow and maybe be countercultural and say, you know what, I want to be humble because that's a Christian virtue. And actually, God exalts the humble and he lowers the prideful. It's pretty easy to take that home and say, I can apply that. 
of all people, I shouldn't be that way. I shouldn't be prideful. It's interesting now, too, to even step back again and say, how do I read this in light of the fact that I do know more Bible passages? I can't help but think of Philippians chapter 2 and think about Jesus who humbled himself and took on the form of humanity. He became one of us. And then what happens? His humiliation leads to then his great high exaltation to be king of kings and lord of lords. That's what's true of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, much like this passage. And now here we are. That's true of Christ. And we call ourselves what? Christians. He didn't show up here, even though he was the king of glory. He came and humbled himself, and and the Father exalted him. And so exaltation comes ultimately through our self-humiliation. So we learn our Christian virtue, even from Christ, setting the record straight. Remember James chapter 4, verse 6, quoting a proverb, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A real practical question I have for you at this point is, What's going to help us with this? Well, the teaching of Jesus here. Duh. Yeah, yeah, that's right. This helps us. This is a little bit of 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 a tug back, a corrective. But if we think bigger picture about what Jesus came to do and who he came to do it for, how do do we help... um, keep ourselves from just being arrogant, prideful people? Because it's pretty natural to come across that way. It's pretty natural to become that. I I think the answer has to ultimately be focusing on the work of Christ. Remember that when Jesus came, he didn't come for all the good people, right? Just remember the gospel. That's a good way to put it, but that just is something we say so often that we might skip its meaning. I mean, think about it. Remember that that he came for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're we're the enemies of God, God, opposed to God, dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2. We're not with him. We're not the lovely ones. He comes when we're against him and he gives himself up for us. Aren't we worthy? No. No. There's this little thing called depravity. And we're all living illustrations of it. You know, we don't live the gospel. We live depravity is what we do. And what helps us to not be arrogant, prideful people is when we remember what Christ did and who he did it for. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper next week on Sunday morning. And we'll hear from Jesus. We'll quote Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. His cross work. His saving work. Where there's atonement. And where you have atonement, you have to have something you have atoned for. Sin. Rebellion. Christians of all people should be humble people knowing that we're sinners and God has saved us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we earned it. And I know you know this. And I know it. And I forget so easily. Because think about how easy it is to forget. I I understand that when I become a Christian. I get it to one degree or another. I get it. Maybe I even get it better the more I grow spiritually. And then I'm eager to go tell my friends. I like the saying, I'm like a beggar telling other beggars where to go and get food. 
I'm not coming in a condescending kind of way, in a a judgmental kind of way. I'm just telling them about what has happened in my life. And it's amazing there can be redemption and restoration and reconciliation because of what God has done, not because of what I've done. It's awesome to be able to do that. And you tell them, eager that they might say, oh, show me where this food is. It's not arrogant and prideful. It shouldn't be if you know anything about sin and anything about salvation. But then some of those friends might say yes and some will say no and they oppose you and it's pretty easy then to start thinking, I believe it, they reject it, I'm right, they're wrong, I'm, we're just a short step away from this one now, good, they're bad. Right? We just crossed the line. We just crossed the line. And it's no wonder our friends, even if we're mindful of this, hear us talking that way. We, we, we need, should work on not talking that way because it's not true. And, and we believe the sovereign work of the Spirit, John chapter 3. I didn't believe because I was smarter, better, more sophisticated, had more education. God sovereignly work and worked and that's how He worked. And that's humbling too. Religion, when it's perverted, the Christian religion, when it's perverted, is one of the ugliest things on the planet. Because it's a perversion of the most fantastic, beautiful, magnificent act of love and grace known. It's no wonder that it has such a bad rap when it's perverted. I'm so thankful for Jesus and Him doing what He's even doing here. Then he gives another illustration. It's related, so let's include it with the same one. Verse 12. Verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So much for Memorial Day. Um, I'm going to tell you why Memorial Day is ungodly if you invite it. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, as a matter of fact, in the big scheme of things, I, I don't think Jesus is, is speaking in a... Um, it's not meant to be taken in an isolated sense. If you isolate this, you could be well on your way of doing like the Pharisees would do and say, I don't have to, love my, I don't have to honor my mother and father because they're relatives. I don't think he means that. It's just like the Pharisees to take statements out of context of the whole and build some sort of weird anti-doctrine on them. I think he's getting at this point. He's he's making his point about self-exaltation and self-seeking and self-benefit. That's what we just saw. I think he's continuing with that theme. And if you want to show Christian charity and act like a Christian and you want to represent God in your actions because that's what Pharisees claim to be doing, then you're not going to be all about inviting people who will give you back in return. That's just another way of fulfilling your own desires. I think that's the idea. So keep that in mind. I may be wrong, but I think that's in keeping with the bigger context. 
keep that in mind when he says what he says. And then in verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. God God will take care of you. You're humbling yourself by associating with those people. Just like he talked about earlier. And God will exalt those who are humbled. And here he just says it in a different way. The resurrection of the just. God will be the rewarder of that. But, but when you do it all for the here and now, what you get back, don't think you're imitating God's grace. Don't think you're imitating God's mercy. You're not. It's just a way of you're going to give and you're going to receive. You want to test yourself? You want to see if you're doing it the way God would do it as you profess to represent God? And show acts of kindness, charity, love, and grace to people you know can't reciprocate. That's a challenge. That's a challenge. That's grace. And once again, when, if we understand the gospel, we understand how this works. God gave us what we didn't deserve, nor could we repay it back. And now we're going to imitate God's love. We're going to give to people who can't give it back to us, who couldn't earn it. It wasn't because they happened to live in my nice neighborhood kind of thing. This sounds kind of negative at this point in time, and I, and I have to come up for breath before we get to number three and, and say, you know, he, he, is, he is aiming at the Pharisees, so there's a reason why it sounds negative. They've been corrupting true religion. And so they're in his sights. But it is helpful for us to realize he's doing this for a grander purpose and a greater purpose for our benefit. That we would understand him. We would understand him and we would understand what the genuine is supposed to look like. Let's move on to the third, a third action by Jesus that rescues religion and that's exposing the folly of Christless Christians. Exposing the folly of Christless Christians, which sounds like folly itself. There's no such thing as a Christless Christian. That's kind of weird sounding. Let's set it up this way. You've got people who've been talking about Messiah, 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 Messiah. We're waiting for Messiah. Messiah means deliverer. Messiah means savior. Messiah is the the ultimate king that God had promised long ago. We're waiting for him. He's going to bring justice. He's going to bring equity. He's going to bring restoration. He's going to bring everything into, into balance the way that it was meant to be. Messiah, 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 Messiah. We're Messiah people. Come listen to my, my Sabbath lectures, if I'm a Pharisee, on Messiah. The great hope of Messiah. Come listen to this seminar and this conference and you get the idea. And remember, Messiah is the Old Testament word used in the New Testament. comes directly over Christ. Messiah, Christ, 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 Christ. Let's make it a little bit different word. Christians, 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 Christians. We're Christians. We're Christians. We're we're Messianics is, is the idea. We're Christians. We teach about Christ. We teach Christian ethics. We teach Christ is coming. We teach all of these great things. Be transformed by meditating on it. Be ready. Be expecting. Know the passages. It's going to be wonderful. It's a great hope. Christians, 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 Christians. 
little dramatic, I know, but you get the idea now. They're Christians in that sense. And now we're going to see they're Christless, which doesn't make any sense. They're, because they don't trust in Christ when He comes. They're Christless Christians, or vice versa, Christless Christians. Let's go ahead and look at it. Verse 15, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, not the things I just said, but um, this thing about the kingdom, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I don't know if the guy fell asleep or just wasn't paying attention, but he's like, I have a thought. Let me make a profound statement. You know, my profound statement and thought, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And if there were any Baptists back there, what, what, what would have every Baptist have said? Amen. There would have been a unanimous amen from all of the Pharisees. Because what the guy says is right. It's absolutely right. You know, if you're in the kingdom there fellowshipping with God and with one another, you know what? You're a blessed person. Well, Jesus is going to take that statement that's a little bit off the wall and go somewhere with it because the man is assuming, as we're going to see, that everyone who's there, universally, everyone who's there at the Pharisee party is going to be part of that kingdom. Well, maybe all this Sabbath stuff is confusing, but one thing's for sure, we're all going to be in heaven someday and it'll be great. Well, that's a pretty big assumption. Let's keep reading. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, probably referring here to the Jews, national Israel, they've been invited. They're, they're the, the elect people of God, the holy nation. Come, for everything is ready now. All of the anticipation, all of the expectation, all of the prophetic statements, and now it's not just it's going to come. The King is here. Messiah is here. Christ is here. You've all been saying Christ, 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 Christ. And now He's here. There's only one logical thing to do. You're going to embrace Him. You're going to put your trust in Him for deliverance. Then verse 18, But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and, and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another in verse 20 said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. At least somebody had a good excuse. No. <laughs> you know, I'm a powerful person and, and I sent people to buy auction for me and I really should examine them myself. And, and, and I, I have a real estate deal that I sent my people to go and, and secure for me and I really should go investigate it myself. And, and you know what? I got married. I have a wife now. I'm busy. It's not that these things aren't important. Excuse, excuse, excuse. The ultimate when it comes to importance. 
that they've been talking about because they've been professing Messiah people, professing Christians, and now Christ shows up and they refuse to trust Him. That's perverted religion. And you say, you might be thinking, that, 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 that's pretty intense. But think about how helpful it is that Jesus exposes this and so we have a category for such a thing. Because amidst all that we see and all that they see of all of these things that are done in the name of Christianity, in the name of Messiah, that are utterly awful and terrible and unmessiah-like, it's helpful to have a category like this. You can talk about Christ all you want, but if you're not trusting in Christ, it's nonsense. And once again, it's, it's good to have a category like that. Because of all the perverted religion, it doesn't mean all religion is perverted. It doesn't mean all the faux Christianity doesn't mean that genuine Christianity is bogus. By saying what Jesus is saying here, we, 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 can, we can think that through. Because isn't it interesting, just drop down with me for a second if you would to the end uh, in verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. It might seem harsh, might seem unloving, but if it's true, once again, I just can't impress upon you enough or try to. It's good to have a category for faux Christianity, for bogus Christianity. They talk the talk, but they're not resting in Christ. They're not embracing the biblical Christ as the Christ. And he makes the point rather clear, rather uncomfortably, none of those are invited uh, who were invited shall taste my banquet. It's talking about the kingdom. Which earlier we've seen in Luke, the kingdom is associated with salvation. This helps us. By the way, this even helps me to have a better conversation with my unbelieving friend who thinks all Christians are utter hypocrites. It's helpful. Then it says... Um, uh, let's, let's, do, let's, let's move to, to, to the final. So the difference there is Christ. Um, let's move to number four uh, rather quickly. Uh, the fourth action by Jesus that rescues religion is expressing the diversity of God's call. This won't make everyone happy because people want diversity in a way that God hasn't spelled it out, but sometimes Christianity is, is written off as this utterly, completely, absolutely narrow thing. Um, and while Jesus does claim to be the door, which is narrow, the road, which is narrow, we have to understand that there's more to it and, and there's a great breadth and there's a great inclusivity um, involved also. And we see something of that here. Um, look at verse 21. I'll just sample verse 21. Halfway through the verse, this, he, he, no, all of 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Verse 22, And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is 
room. So notice the, the breadth. I'm, we're going to go to all these people that the religious uh, somebodies uh, overlook, and we're going to them. Not the powerful. We're going to the weak. We're going to them. And he says, all right, we've done that. And there's still room. Notice there is an emphasis on breadth. And there's still room. Verse 23, And the master said to the servant, Go to the highways and hedges, maybe even now outside of the city. Highways and hedges, the highways and byways, we might say. Go, uh, go out to the highways and hedges and compel. Notice even the, the, the compelling. There's, there's something of the sensitivity and urgency. Uh, compel people to come in, that my house may be filled there's no way around the fact that there, there's something very big about that and something very broad about that, and, and we overlook that sometimes. I'm not ashamed to say, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'm not ashamed to, to say there's one mediator between God and man. That's because God only had one son. It's his unique son, and he came here, and only one fulfilled the law, and we need someone on our behalf to fulfill the law. I'm not ashamed to say that. We've been seeing that in Luke. But there's also this great, amazing breadth involved. Salvation isn't just for Jewish people in the elect nation. This makes sense and complements Matthew 28, where Jesus will say, go to all nations. Yeah, we, we, we extend, to use theological terms, we extend the general call to everybody knowing this. We tell everyone to trust in Christ. We want to com- be, be compelling like these guys are. Reminds me of Revelation chapter 5 where it says, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented. And there are people who will be there redeemed by the Lamb more than we can count. He's a great, grand Savior. And biblical Christianity, genuine religion, if you will, teaches that. He is the Savior, but He saves many, and there are different kinds of people, and there are many, many of them. And this is a helpful corrective by Jesus, again, rescuing religion. Isn't it interesting? I hope you've noticed that in, in so many of these, it, it, it would be so easy to be right in biblical, and yet they're, they're off just enough to have it be utterly perverse. And there's probably a lesson to be learned in all that. That's why we need Jesus to speak to these issues. And by the way, it's why I need to keep listening to Jesus and His Word, and you do too, because it's so easy to remember part of what is emphasized. And you don't remember the whole, and before you know it, you've got some kind of weird, perverted religion under the name of Christianity, but it's really a faux Christianity. It's so good that Jesus speaks to these issues. And there really is a call for a, a good kind of balance that's right and genuine and authentic. Still, people may still reject it, but we can at least know what it is. It's kind of interesting. This whole thing sort of comes to a crashing halt with what commentators would suggest a purposeful silence. Make no mistake about it. Those I'm talking to in my midst here, Jesus says, will have no part in fellowship with God in the kingdom. 
And they were the ones who said they're kingdom people. So what's the answer? How can you not be that person? Oh, I'm going to try harder, pastor. I need more accountability, pastor. I promise to be better next time, pastor. No, no, and no. What keeps you out of bogus, empty word Christianity is one thing. Not trusting in the Christ of genuine Christianity. We don't come to God by our merits. We come to God by the merits of Christ. And that would be the worst perversion of religion to get that wrong. We see Jesus for who He is and we rest in Him and His work. And then we're motivated to do the right thing in response to that. Father, thank You so much for our time and thank You for Jesus who does give us a great example, but we're thankful that before He gives us a great example, He's the great Savior who's fulfilling the law for us. May we find ourselves wonderfully, splendidly, like never before, valuing Christ and what He's done and what He's promised to do. And may we find ourselves like never before, uh, filled with joy and gratitude, acknowledging the good gifts that are ours in Christ and moved and motivated to love and to show humility and to tell others of this great Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.